For the rest of us now, let's open up to Romans chapter 14 as we continue on in this glorious epistle, finishing up chapter 14 this morning. Let's stand up together now in honor of the word of the Lord. Hear now the words of the Lord. Romans chapter 14, we'll be picking up where we left off two weeks ago, and that has us in verse 19. This is the word of the Lord. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep it between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Lord, we praise you for this good and pure and perfect gift that you have given to us, and we pray Lord, by the preaching of your word this morning, by your Holy Spirit's enabling, we would have ears to hear and we would be transformed more into the likeness of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that, Lord, our hearts would be attentive to your word, eager to obey. I pray for myself as I proclaim your words, that that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, becoming a Christian is really easy. All you have to do is completely abandon everything that you are. That's it. That's all that it takes. Totally surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. Take up your cross daily and follow him. It's easy. It's as easy as just a complete annihilation of everything that you used to be, of everything that you used to depend upon, just a total repudiation of your own inherent goodness, a renunciation of any man-made attempts to appease God or to remedy your sin or to alleviate your own guilt, to give you right standing with God. It's as easy as just fundamentally walking entirely away from yourselves. It's really as easy for us to become a Christian as it was for Lazarus to rise from the dead and walk out of the grave. And the truth is, for Lazarus, that actually wasn't hard at all. That There was power in the command of Jesus, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus was made to live. And Lazarus was made to obey. Just as there was power in the command of Christ, let there be light, and light had to come forth. That's the same power that's at work in any human heart that turns from death to life. Any human heart that comes from darkness to light. Any human heart that actually exercises saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's it's the power from the command of Christ that makes it A pretty simple step on our part. And the point is, just as Lazarus living again, just as light shining out of nothingness 
Becoming a Christian, humanly speaking, is impossible for us. It is not a thing we can generate from within ourselves. It is, naturally speaking, unattainable. It is totally impossible. But supernaturally speaking, it's simple. It's a simple thing. It is always miraculous. If you are in Christ, you have experienced this supernatural power. That same power that caused Lazarus to come forth from the grave. That same power that spoke light into darkness. That spoke all of creation into nothingness. You've been born from above. You've been raised from the dead. You've been reconciled to God through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And the simple facts of the gospel, the simple facts of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus are facts that are so simple that a child could understand them, and yet they are impossible to believe savingly without some form of divine intervention, without divine initiative that reaches down to us and plucks us up from the grave that we're in without the supernatural interfering work of God the Holy Spirit, it is impossible. And in becoming a Christian, you've not only experienced that divine power from God, that sovereign might of God, you've also been placed in Christ. But you've not only been placed in Christ, you've not only been placed into to union with God himself, indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God as an individual, you've been placed by him into a body, into a family, into a group of people. You've been placed by God into an interconnected, interdependent fellowship of believers. You've been placed by God, not just into an invisible church that makes up all of God's people from all of time. You've been placed into a local church with other people who you can see with your eyes and hear with your ears and smell with your nose sometimes. When we come together, though, as a church, we realize pretty quickly that we're all different. Even a little town like Topeka, we're all very different. We come from different backgrounds. We've all had different experiences. Some have walked with Christ much longer than others have. Some have pursued Christ much more fervently than others have. We've all got various weaknesses and we've all got various strengths. We've got different interests and different preferences. Each one is running his or her own race. But all of us individually have been placed together into this one living, interconnected, interdependent organism called the church. We're members of one another in the body of Christ. And so within that body, our differences have a way of coming to the surface. And, and you might be thinking at this point as we took up the reading of Romans chapter 14 and I've started now in this introduction of the sermon, you go, we're talking about this again? We're talking about all our differences. This is the fourth week We've been talking about our differences from one another and what it means to walk in unity with those differences. And I would just say to you this, God knew we would need to dwell on this for a while. That's why we've got more than a full chapter on this topic. So take it up with God if you think we've been talking about it too much. The truth is we are different from one another and that can be hard. That's where much conflict comes from. 
We feel very strongly about our differences. And again, as, as we've been in Romans chapter 14, Paul is not talking about differences on matters of doctrine. He's not talking about things that the Bible identifies as sin, of commands of Scripture, and we're different on those. No, that's not what he's saying. It, it's, it's different on matters that Scripture does not directly forbid or command for us. And yet we usually feel very strongly about those things. The first Sunday we took up Romans 14, I started with just a full-page list of what some of those things are, and I'm sure I, I touched on at least something in there where everybody's like, I think we shouldn't agree to disagree about that. We feel very, very strongly about those things, and so we're tempted to judge. We're tempted to divide. We struggle even with some of those things to know, is this a freedom that I have in Christ or is this a law that I should never transgress? Is this a command that we all have to obey or is this a preference? Those things are often not easy. What we've been seeing as we've been going through Romans chapter 14, and Paul's going to drive it home for us today, is we can't stop, simply stop with the question, can I? Can I do this thing? Can I eat meat? To use the example Paul's been using. Can I drink this drink? Can I do this activity? We need to go further than that question of can I do this thing and ask what do my choices mean for others? What do my choices mean for others in this body of Christ to whom I'm now interconnected? What does it mean for those to whom I've been placed in this fellowship with? You see, our, our preferences, our liberties, our freedoms in Christ are not all about us. They don't terminate on me. They're about my brothers and sisters in Christ that I'm connected with in the local church. And Paul has been emphasizing that point repeatedly, coming at it from all kinds of different angles. We have to think that way because the Christian life is not lived in isolation it's a life lived in a family. It's a life lived in a body. It's a life lived with others. That's how God has created us. That's how he's made this tour. I, last Sunday, sitting at home, because we got COVID, I'm sitting there watching the live stream of this service, and I was grateful that I had it to watch, and I'm thinking how grateful I am for the people that served, whether it was the musicians or Brad preaching or whatever it is. But at one point I turned to Andrea and Hannah as we sat there in the living room and I said, I hate this. I hate this. I hate sitting at home in my living room watching a church service that I am not a part of. I can't stand it. Because God's made us to be together. God's made us to be with one another. God hasn't made our, our worship of him to terminate on us and our Preferences. We need to say, how do my actions affect those in the church, those whom God has called me into fellowship with? So, so discovering what is and is not a freedom for you is not your guide in this. Love is your guide in this. Love for God first and love for others. And that requires not only the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, it certainly requires that. It also requires constant effort, constant consideration. So it shouldn't be surprising to us that Paul takes a long time to talk about this topic. We need it. We need to hear it. We need to have it hammered into our heads. 
There's a parallel passage to what we've seen in Romans chapter 14. Flip with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we see this parallel. And I just want to take a little time to, to look at it because Paul draws out very specific detail to a very specific issue that, that was dividing when it came to the eating of food. So we see some application of the principles we see here in Romans 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4. Paul says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, that there's no God but one. Now, now Paul is not saying that there aren't demons behind the idols. In fact, he, he lets us know elsewhere that there are. That, that the idol worship in Scripture and the idol worship we see in the world around us today, it is not merely an act of pagan superstition. There are real demonic supernatural entities behind those idols that are being worshipped. In, in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says that those who sacrifice to idols are actually sacrificing to demons. And so he's not denying the existence here of these supernatural entities, but he's making a different point. His point here is, for the believer, the idol itself is nothing. Remember the issue is, if you go to the market to buy meat, that meat has been probably purchased out of the sacrificial system of having been a cow that was sacrificed to this idol somewhere. And there were Christians who, whose conscience wouldn't allow them to eat that meat, and this, this debate sort of arose because of that. And Paul's point is, an idol can't do anything but sit there. It's not a real thing. It's drawing from that same idea we see in, in, in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 44, where Paul sort of mockingly says of idol worshipers, a guy goes out and cuts down a tree, now he's got this big log, half the log he uses for firewood to cook his food, the other half he turns it into a god and he worships it. And Isaiah is sort of, sort of mockingly saying, well how do you even know what end of the log is God and what end is firewood? And it points to the stupidity of bowing down to a block of wood that you have to care for. Anything that block of wood's going to do, you're going to do for it. And now you're, you're praying to this thing and sacrificing to this thing, thinking it might take care of you in some way. An idol is nothing. That's what Isaiah is saying. That's what Paul's saying. More than that, the Christian is not participating in idol worship simply by purchasing the meat out of the market and eating it. Paul says, you're not worshiping an idol just because you're buying this meat that was sacrificed to the idol. It doesn't immediately follow that that's the case. And so meat sacrificed to an idol poses no threat to the believer. That's what Paul's saying. Go on in, in, in verse 5 here of 1 Corinthians 8. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So Paul says, this is ultimate reality. There's all these people worshiping idols out there. There's all of this sacrificial and worship system going on. But we know what's true. There is one true and living God. He goes on, verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge. 
Some, through former association with idols, eat, fo eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat, no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? So Paul says, we know what's true. Idols are nothing. There's only one God. These are just blocks of wood that have been ornately decorated. But there are these other people, your brothers and sisters, and their conscience is not so well informed as yours is. Their conscience is not as strong. Their understanding is not as strong as yours is. And if they see you sitting in the temple eating this food sacrificed to an idol, which is not a problem for you, they just might follow your example and violate their own conscience. He goes on in verse 11, so by your knowledge, this work, weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. <coughs> That's what Paul's been saying here in Romans chapter 14. That's the point he has been making. This is how serious the matter of Christian liberty is, and this is why Paul takes so much time on it. If we are thoughtless, if we are self-centered, if we are careless in our freedom, we run the risk of destroying the one for whom Christ died. And in doing so, Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 8, sinning against Christ ourselves. And so here in Romans 14, Paul has been trying to help us not do that. He's been helping us avoid that. He's been giving us directives to govern our use of Christian liberty. He's been giving us a manual for how to live with one another and all our varied differences in this one body, this one interconnected, interdependent body of Christ. How to walk in unity. How to walk in love with each other. We'll, we'll see now in these verses today, and you can flip back to, to Romans 14, Five more of these instructions from Paul. First is we need to pursue peace and mutual edification. Look at verse 19. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. This word pursue here is a strong word. It means to run after. It means to, to chase down. This word is often used for the word persecute. It's, it's to chase after something to persecute it, to take hold of it. It's a, it's a decisive word. It's a violent word, even. We're, we're not just supposed to think about peace and mutual upbuilding. We're not just to wish for it. Wouldn't it be nice if we had that? If we all just got along with each other? Wouldn't that be a, I think to myself, what a wonderful world. No, we're to pursue it. We're to chase it down. That's what Paul tells us. It's not a casual thing. It's not a stroll in the park. It's not even jogging. It's to run decisively, to run rapidly in pursuit of something. And we are to pursue, he tells us, peace and mutual edification in the church. We are to use significant efforts to chase after them. Why? 
because they're often elusive. Why do we get this long teaching from Paul on this topic instead of just telling us, like, don't be a jerk. He could have done this in one sentence. Eat the meat or don't eat the meat. Just don't be jerks to each other. On to chapter 15. No, because we need this. These are elusive things. Peace. Mutual edification. We're called to expend all our energies, not in chasing after our own freedoms, We're called to actively pursue that which produces peace with one another, that which builds up our brothers and sisters. So the question is, as we read this, Christian, what are you doing to pursue peace with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Really, consider that. And you might be thinking, well, I'm not actively waging war against anyone. And I would say that's good. Don't actively wage war against your brothers and sisters in the church. But that is not the command. The command is not just don't be hostile towards your brothers and sisters in the church. To obey this command takes positive effort, not passivity. It requires a radical death to self, which is the Christian life anyway, right? Isn't that what Jesus tells us? To die daily by taking up our cross and following him. This is the Christian life. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We must pursue these things. We have to put aside self-interest if we want to pursue peace with others. This This isn't living at peace with everyone who thinks like you think. And does things the way you would want to do them. No, this is a laying aside of self-interest. It's a, it's a commitment to dying to self for the benefit of another. And, and when everybody is doing that, what a joyous thing the church is. What a glorious thing. There's so much joy in that. There's so much freedom and life in that. The world can see that. We're also to pursue not just peace with one another, but mutual upbuilding. We're we're to spur one another on to love and good deeds, to to promote vitality in Christian living and affections and Christ-honoring obedience in one another. We're to be eager to join together in this way, to do this, to be interdependent, to be interconnected, each one doing our part to produce life and fruitfulness in the body of Christ. That's That's how the body of Christ is built up. That's how the church grows in strength and health. It's what we're supposed to be doing for one another. Yet these things are not automatic. We don't just do them because we've been converted. We don't just do them because we're in a church together. We don't even just do them because we like each other. They must be pursued decisively, intentionally, Actively. They're not always easy. They take effort. They take sacrifice. And that's why God has given us such in-depth instruction on this topic here. Because it's hard. It's hard to build up. It is easy to be a wrecking ball. It is easy to be the... I have found that in my life. The older I get in my walk with Christ, 
the more I find it was easy for me as a young man to just tear down everything I saw around me. Oh, I don't like this because of that. And I don't like this because of that. It's, it's easy to tear down. But, but to build up requires humble, faith-filled, plodding effort. Day after day. Moment after moment. Year after year. Conversation by conversation. Dying to self. Continuing to pursue this one goal and not growing weary in it. Second, then, he says, don't destroy the work of God. Look at the first part of verse 20. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Well, certainly we're not to tear down the work of God in an individual believer, but there's something even larger at stake here in what Paul's saying. The work of God in the church corporately is at stake in this because we're members of one another. God is the one who brings the church together. Our, our unity is in Christ. Our unity is not in, in our affinities with one another and our commonalities with one another. It's in Christ. It's, it's his work. Christian unity is a gift from God, not a status we achieve. We don't say we hope that we've one day got unity with each other. No, we've got unity with each other. It's a gift from God. Now we must walk in it. Now our lives must reflect what's actually true on a spiritual level, that we are united together. We have been made members one of another. And so it's Christ then who builds the church. It's his work. And Paul says, do not tear down his work. Do not tear down Christ's work. And God is always working through means. What are the means by which Christ will build his church? Jesus says, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. What are the means by which God's going to do that? What are the means by which Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd of the church, the senior pastor of the church, what are the means by which he is going to build his church? We are. We're the means he uses to do that. Christians. That's how Jesus builds his church, so that not even the gates of hell prevail against it. We build one another up, and in doing so, we build up the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if we harm one another, if we tear one another down, if we judge one another, if we trample on our own conscience or, or the consciences of our brothers and our sisters, the, the, those things are always aimed in one direction, and it is not the building of the church, it is destruction. It's destroying the work of Christ. So Paul says, don't destroy the work of God for food. You hear how crazy that sounds? God has done this work and you're going to tear it down over food. You want this momentary pleasure so badly that you'll make yourself God's enemy so that you can eat bacon in the setting you want to eat it in. He's showing how absurd it is. How irrational our selfishness is you got your whole life to do whatever the one thing is, and you've decided it's so important for you to do it in this one moment right here, in this one setting, so that your freedoms and your preferences are not trampled on, even for a moment, that you'll make yourself an enemy of God by tearing down his work, by scandalizing the one for whom Christ died. Paul's showing us that is lunacy. 
Third then, learn to discern what is good and what is bad. Continuing on in verse 20. Everything is indeed clean, but it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. It says everything is clean. Literally, all things are pure. It's a reference to ceremonial cleanliness before God. So Paul says pork, shellfish, all the things that were off the menu under the Old Testament law, they are no longer unclean before the Lord. They are clean. They are pure. So is that meat that's in the market that's been sacrificed to idols. It is clean. It's pure before the Lord. So Paul Paul is siding here with the strong. Again, we've seen that in this passage. He's siding with the strong and saying, eat whatever you want to eat. You're free to do that. Receive it with gratitude to God and enjoy it as a good gift from him. But then it's followed with that all-important word, but. But, he says, to use that freedom in a way that causes others to stumble is wrong. Literally, the word is wicked. It's evil. It would be evil to use this good gift from God to cause someone else to stumble. On the other hand, then, he says, to exercise our freedoms with the good of others in mind so as not to cause them to stumble is good. It's good to abstain for the sake of a brother. It's good to limit your exercise of freedom for the good of your brother and sister in the church. It is a good thing. It is a pure thing. It is a sweet thing to do that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19, Paul says, Though I'm free from all, I've made myself a slave to all that I might win them. In chapter 10, verse 24 of 1 Corinthians, he says, Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And then in verse 33, he says, Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, that of many, that they might be saved. That's what Paul's putting forward to us as the attitude we ought to have. And now many people have misunderstood Paul's statements when he says things like this. When Paul says, I try to be all things to all people. When Paul makes statements like we just read, when I'm in the company of certain people, I try to be like them. I try to be like whoever it is I'm in their company. And they they take that to mean Paul's telling us something like, well, when in Rome, act like a Roman. Dress like they dress. Eat like they eat. Talk like they talk. Believe like they believe. You work in a trailer factory, an RV factory, just take their vocabulary on. It honors the Lord. If you've ever been in one of those settings, you know that's bad advice. (laughs) Sailors blush. Old-timey pirates are shocked when they hear the language in RV factories. That's not what Paul's saying at all. Not not even close. And, And he's certainly not saying we need to dumb down the church to appeal to the lowest common denominator of an entertainment addicted, self absorbed culture by adding in all kinds of ridiculous nonsense into corporate worship. People try to use Paul's statements to say those things couldn't be farther from what Paul is trying to tell us. None of that is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, I make myself like others through self-limitation. That's what Paul's advocating. 
not taking on aspects of, of sinfulness and the most basic things. Paul's saying, I will gladly sacrifice my freedoms so as not to cause offense. So he's not saying, I get to do whatever I want to do. I'll just go along with what everybody else is doing around me. That's, that's what I'll, no, he's saying the opposite. He's saying, I get to deny myself for the good of everybody around me. What a privilege that is, to deny myself for the benefit of those around me. That's mature Christianity. Fourth, then, he says, we are to be convinced privately before God. Verse 22, the faith you have, keep it between yourself and God. This is personal, persuaded conviction. Not broadcast to all who will hear. Not posted on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. Not condescendingly announced every time the topic comes up. You know you have those people in your life and you will avoid certain topics because you know you're going to get a sanctimonious sermon from them about them. Oh, I stopped at Starbucks. I would never, ever, ever, ever stop at Starbucks. Such a wicked. And you're like, why did I? I knew not to say that word to these people. By the way, if we can have meat sacrificed to idols in the market, then I can have a chai latte. <laughs> Just put that out there. <laughs> I haven't been to counseling in a couple weeks. I'm just working through some stuff on my own. No, Paul says, keep that stuff to yourself. Keep it between you and God. Keep that conviction between you and God. He is not talking about saving faith. He is not talking about the gospel. Our culture tells us that. Keep the faith you got between you and God. Right? It was President Obama a few years ago. You need to keep it in your homes and in your church pews. Well, we've seen pretty quick. They don't want it in our homes or our church pews either. Don't evangelize. Don't proclaim the gospel. Don't call sin, sin. That is not what Paul is telling us to do. The Bible never tells us to be silent about the gospel. It tells us the opposite, to preach the gospel to the very ends of the earth. The faith here that Paul's talking about is the confident assurance that whatever it is that I'm doing or not doing pleases the Lord in my doing or not doing of it. But that's what Paul's talking about. In that area of freedom... In these matters of indifference that Scripture neither forbids nor commands, keep that conviction between you and God. Don't flaunt your freedom. That's what Paul's telling us here. This isn't for public consumption. Well, why is that? Because it's our duty to protect our brother and sister in the Lord. That's why. So we're to be fully convinced in our own mind and then keep our opinion on matters of indifference between us and God. Now, does that mean we can never talk about it? No, that's not what Paul's saying either. We, we can and should encourage others in the faith. We can discuss these issues. We can sharpen and teach one another. We are called to do that. But we must do so in humility. 
That is the component that is sadly lacking in most of our discussions about these topics. We must do so in humility and not in a way that either judges our brother or sister or causes them to violate their own conscience. So what we're fighting for here is blessing rather than condemnation. That that's what we want, not just for ourselves, but for our brothers and sisters. By not causing others to stumble. And we need this for our own sake, not just because we don't want them to stumble and sin. We need it for our sake because we need to fight against arrogance in our own heart. That's universally true. You, Christian, need to fight against arrogance in your own heart. I need to fight against arrogance in my own heart. Oscar Wilde famously said it and defined a gentleman as one who never offends someone unintentionally. We don't like most of what Oscar Wilde said, but I do like that quote from him. We, we, we must be thoughtful. We must be humble. We must be gentle. We must be gracious in our conversations with one another on these topics. Just because you believe something to be true does not mean that you're the one to say it. And it doesn't mean that that moment is the right time to say it either. You, you could say something, you could be in the right, just as Paul says, the stronger in the right here on this disagreement over me. It doesn't mean you're the one to be the prophetic voice of reason to your sad brother or sister in Christ. And it doesn't mean that every moment is the right moment to say that. Finally, then he says to us to be careful what it is that we approve. Now, after all of this, how we treat one another, how we think about these things, he reminds us not to be too hasty in what we approve. Verse 22, second half of verse 22. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Exercise wisdom in what you approve. Does it really produce the fruit of gratitude to God in my heart? Does it really produce righteousness? Does it really produce worship to God in my heart? Are you convinced, fully convinced that it is pleasing to the Lord? You don't want to find out on the back end that there's some verse or some principle from Scripture that you have overlooked. None of us are perfect. We all miss things. But Paul says you will be blessed. You will be happy if you don't find yourself in a position of having to pass judgment on yourself for what it is that you've approved. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 25 says it's a snare. It's a, it's a trap to say rashly, it is holy, and then reflect only after making vows. The, the principle Paul's giving us here is look before you leap, Christian. He's not telling us to cower in fear. Don't do anything just in case you might transgress. That's what the, the person with the weak conscience is doing. But we're called to investigate, to examine. In order to do this rightly, we need to have immersed ourselves in scriptures to know what it is that God approves, what it is that God condemns. 
<coughs> and, and then strive to bring your life into conformity with the character of God in every aspect. And, and you will find your life is blessed when you do that. There, there's joy in that. There's, there's happiness in that. There's freedom and, and light in that. Verse 23 then he says, But whoever doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. To doubt here is to, it's to waver back and forth, to vacillate in your judgments. One day I think it's okay, the next day I'm not sure. Back and forth, Monday I'm feeling pretty good about this thing. Just got some questions by midweek. I'm thinking probably not. I probably shouldn't be doing this. By the weekend, though, it's definitely on. It's a go. Yeah, this is definitely a good thing. And back again by Monday. Oh, boy, I'm not sure. It's wavering back and forth over these things. And Paul says, if you eat in that state, if you eat that meat in that state, or if you do whatever that thing is in that state of doubt, without full assurance that what you're doing pleases the Lord, then you're not eating in faith, you're sinning. It's not even a matter of being technically, theologically correct. If you eat the bacon, which you are technically allowed to do, but you don't do it in faith, instead you're wavering back and forth, is it okay for me to do this, is it not okay? Then Paul says you're sinning. By violating your own conscience. It doesn't matter that it, was, that it would have been okay to eat it. That's how the conscience works. And he tells us why. For, for, he says, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. He says the exact same thing in the positive in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, which we all know well. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So on the negative, if it doesn't proceed from faith, it's sin in the posit- stated in the positive. Whatever you eat, whatever you drink, do it to the glory of God. That's our call as Christians. Whatever we do, we therefore do. This is true, therefore do this, or therefore don't do that. So the commands of God always work. They're never arbitrary. Or he's based on some great truth of who God is and how he has made us. There's motivation in this. We do everything as Christians for a purpose, with a goal. Because of the gospel. And so if it's not done from a place of worship and gratitude, then it should not be done. And so anything that does not proceed from faith is sin, Paul says. He says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Christian unity, our deference to one another, our preferring of one another in matters of preference, 
is rooted in the gospel. The life and death and burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, destroying our sin, absorbing God's wrath, reconciling us to God. It's, it's rooted in our adoption as the sons of God. It is rooted in our future inheritance with Him. And it is, it is these things that motivate every action of the Christian, every decision of the Christian. This is gospel that calls us to a comprehensive submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. It calls us to a radical unity with one another, flowing out of the unity we have with Christ. And yes, it calls us to sacrificial living on behalf of one another, empowered by, blessed by, the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. This is a work of God in the life of the Christian, but it is one for which we must strive. We must pursue it. And what joy there is. What freedom there is in this. And, and we're, we're coming up now on this Christmas season where, if you're my age, you remember back to when your kids were, were little. They're adults and boring now. Maybe you've got little kids, and you remember what it's like to sit around the Christmas tree and watch them open something that you, you are giving to them, and they love it. And what a joy it is to see the happiness that it brings to them. That is the tiniest, basest foretaste of what God has called us to in, in showing deference to one another in the church. I could sacrifice for the good of my brother or sister, and they might not even know that I did it. But oh, to watch them grow. Oh, to watch their faith blossom. To see the way that the Lord uses them. Oh, what a joy. What a privilege. What an honor. And this is what the Lord has, has called us to. What a gift. What a gift it is. And what, how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Let's pray. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Lord, the challenges we see in Scripture, this call to die daily is, is overwhelming. It is comprehensive. It is beyond our meager human abilities, but we rejoice that the, the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the triune Godhead, dwells within us empowering us. The same Spirit who, who brought life to our spiritual death, who brought sight to our blinded eyes and hearing to our deaf ears, who has replaced our heart of stone with a heart of flesh, who has renewed our debased and depraved mind with the mind of Christ. This same Spirit who day by day is continuing to transform us into the likeness of our Savior. We rejoice that this same Spirit enables us to obey the commands, the gracious commands, the, the kind commands of our loving Father. Pray, God, that you would make us faithful. Lord, let this church, let our individual lives be marked by this radical union, not just with Christ, although that is our great glory and hope and joy in this life. 
but also marked by our union with one another, our love for one another. And Lord, may the world see it. May the world see it and glorify you, our Father, from whom all blessings flow. May it adorn your gospel in such a way that that they see with their eyes the power and the truth of this gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things, Lord, for your glory, for your kingdom's sake, for the eternal joy of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.